Welcome to the Raise Private Money Legally Podcast with your host, Corporate Securities Attorney Kim Lisa Taylor. Kim is a nationally recognized attorney, speaker, and the author of two number one Amazon best-selling books, the latest of which is How to Raise Capital for Real Estate Legally. Kim and her firm, Syndication Attorneys, PLLC, have been responsible for over $2.75 billion in securities offerings. The purpose of this podcast is to introduce you to topics and services you need as your real estate syndication business grows. Whether you're a new syndicator or a seasoned fund manager, this podcast is for you. Information discussed during this free podcast is of a general, educational nature and should not be construed as legal or tax advice. All right. Um, hey, it's nine o'clock uh, Pacific time and noon Eastern time, and we are ready to get started on our uh, monthly teleseminar. This is a free monthly teleseminar offered by syndication attorneys to our database. Um, hopefully, some of you are clients and some of you are prospective clients. And we want to make sure that you have all the information that you need so that you can go out and confidently raise money from investors. And that's the whole purpose of this call. Uh, Additionally, we invite guest speakers uh, so that they can talk to you about services that you might need for your syndication or just for your uh, growing your business. Uh, We're a small business. You're growing a small business. So whenever we have cool things that we do or find that uh, we like to use in our business, we like to share those with you as well. So to start with, our topic today is really kind of twofold. Uh, It's it's about determining pre-existing relationships and investor suitability. And we're going to talk about that. That's a, a subject that I get asked about a lot. I've been asked it many, many times over the years, but I thought we should address it head on and give you some guidance so that you know when you're out talking to investors that you are squarely within the rules uh, when you're doing an offering that requires you to determine investor suitability. So the first thing you need to do is figure out when that occurs. So just a little primer in case somebody has joined us for the first time ever and has never heard it, but also just a reminder for all of you that are seasoned investors, you know, what's a security? Well, when you're dealing uh, either uh, issuing promissory notes uh, repeatedly to private investors or if you are selling investment contracts, then you are selling securities. Uh, An investment contract is an investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit based solely on the efforts of the promoter. So that basically covers any situation in which you are accepting passive investment dollars and those investments or those investors are relying on you to make a profit with their investment. So um, examples of that, anytime you form a manager-managed LLC or a limited partnership where there is a manager or a general partner that is running the show, making day-to-day decisions about uh, your property then that is where you are running into those investment contracts. Um, Conversely, what's not a security, if you have a situation where all of your investors are staying actively in control of generating their own profit, then then you could consider that to be a joint venture. You wouldn't have to necessarily follow securities laws uh, as long as everybody is staying actively involved and actively in control of their own money. 
but when they give you their money, you put it in, in a bank account for your company, your company goes out and operates the property, acquires the property, you're definitely selling investment contracts, you're selling securities. Okay, so what? So what if you're selling securities? If you're selling securities, you either have to register them in advance of sales, that means going through the uh, public offering process, and uh, that's going to be a long and expensive process, not something that you're going to be uh, wanting to do for a real estate offering. Um, certainly not something you're going to do when you're first starting out and you've got some properties under contract you need to find. Uh, so if you don't have the time to go out and do the registration process, then the alternative to that is to qualify for an exemption from registration. And there are many. There are exemptions at the state level. If everything is contained within one state, all your, your property, all of your investors and you, then we might be able to look at an intrastate exemption. If you are uh, raising money from people who are coming from multiple states or if you're buying property across state lines, then you probably need to be looking at one of the federal exemptions. And there is a federal exemption that is going to preempt all individual state laws so that the states can't impose further restrictions on your offering, and that is Regulation D, Rule 506. Rule 506 is by far the most common uh, exemption that's out there in the world today and that, that people are using, even giant hedge funds are using this exemption in order to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. But the average person is also using this exemption. According to the SEC statistics, the mean raise for a Regulation D Rule 506 offering is $1.5 million, okay? So that's squarely in the realm of where many of you are going to be starting out your syndication practice, and you may stay there for a long time, raising a half a million and a half dollars or so at a time. Uh, additionally, an interesting statistic from the SEC is that the average investment where, where $1.5 million or so is being raised has 10 to 14 investors in it. Okay, so that's, uh, you know, kind of squarely in the realm of where most of our clients are and probably where you're going to be. Um, the exemptions have rules. So once you decide, okay, I am selling securities, I want to qualify for an exemption, which exemption am I going to choose? Well, you're going to choose the exemption that fits what you're trying to accomplish. And that's where your consultation with an attorney is going to come in because we're going to ask you a series of questions to try to figure out which exemption is going to work the best for you and provide the least amount of restrictions on what you want to accomplish. So we have, uh, when we're talking about Regulation D Rule 506, there's two choices under that. One of them is Regulation D Rule 506B, be like boy, and that regulation or that rule will allow you to raise an unlimited amount of money from an unlimited number of accredited investors and up to 35 non-accredited but sophisticated investors. Um, the hallmark of the Regulation D Rule 506B offering, though, is that there's no general advertising or solicitation allowed. So this is the friends and family exemption. This is where you're able to approach by word of mouth people that you already have established substantive pre-existing relationships with. And there's a new wrinkle here. You have determined that they're suitable to be in your offering. 
So you have to have a pre-existing relationship and you have to determine whether they're suitable to be in your offering. And that's going to be the subject of today's call is how do we determine suitability and who does that apply to? Um, the other uh, hallmark of a Regulation D Rule 506B offering is that the investors will self-certify. So that means you don't have to go digging into their financial background or asking them for documentation to prove whether they're accredited or sophisticated. You only have to inquire, and they will tell you by checking in boxes next to the definition which one applies to them, and they will certify that to you. So that's the 506B. Well, just to put that in context, what is 506C? What's the other alternative to that? Well, Rule 506C is a relatively new rule. It's been in existence uh, for a few years now. That rule will allow you to raise an unlimited amount of money from an unlimited number of verified accredited investors. So no longer can the investors just check a box they actually have to go through a verification process. That means either you have to review their financials or their uh, net worth statements in order to make sure that they meet the qualifications as an accredited investor, or they have to get you a certification letter from their investment advisor, attorney, CPA, or their third-party companies that will do this and and generate those letters from an attorney or a CPA and, and give you that Uh, you have to have a reasonable assurance that they're accredited at the time they make the investment, and that's actually within 90 days of when they make the investment. So if somebody comes to you and says, oh, no, I was accredited last year, I was verified, that's not going to work for you, you have to actually have them get re-verified in order to be able to accept them into your deal. But with a 506C, you can freely advertise. So you can do anything you want to advertise to investors as long as your advertisements are truthful and not uh, don't c- contain fraudulent statements or misrepresentations. And that, again, is where a securities attorney is going to come in because they're going to look at your materials and make sure that you're not making claims that could be attacked later by a regulator or a disgruntled investor. So, um, all right, so we talked about accredited versus non-accredited, just to give you the the little background again, what's an accredited investor? That's someone who has over a million dollars net worth, uh, or they have over $200,000 a year income if single, $300,000 a year if married, and that has to have been for the last two years with the expectation it will continue into the future. So that's an accredited investor. Uh, A non-accredited investor is going to be anybody else. So, um, all right, so let's dive into then, uh, we've talked in other seminars, teleseminars uh, extensively on how to establish pre-existing relationships with investors. We'll touch on it a little bit here, but the meat of this particular teleseminar is on suitability, determining investor suitability, because that's taking it a little step farther than just saying, oh, I met somebody at a seminar, and it's not necessarily good enough. Um, so, all right, so pre-existing relationships, the reason that you have to have this is for a Regulation D Rule 506B exemption, that's how you are able to prove that you didn't find these investors through any means of general advertising or solicitation, because the investor is going to attest to you when they sign a subscription agreement for your offering 
that they already knew you and they've known you and they're going to talk about how they met you and what kind of a relationship you have. So the relationship, the FCC has opined in um, some past uh, things they call no action letters. So, so a no action letter is where somebody who wants to do something, okay, they want to promote their their offering in a particular way, um, or they have some policy that they want to establish on how they're going to determine suitability and free existing relationships with their investors. They have actually hired an attorney to write a, a request to the SEC saying, hey, if we did everything just this way, would that be okay? Would you consider that to be sufficient to establish a pre-existing relationship and suitability? And so through these series of no action letters uh, that the SEC has reviewed over time, uh, they have the, the body of law related to how pre-existing relationships are established and how suitability is determined has evolved based on the SEC's responses to these letters. And so the latest one was uh, this letter uh, from this company called Citizen VC, who sent a letter to the SEC asking them if they could engage in a particular practice of putting things online and uh, you know, putting their offerings online, and then they had a policy as to how they were going to you know, reach out to people who contacted them and what they were going to say to them and what kind of questions they were going to ask for, of them in order to determine whether or not uh, they were indeed suitable. We have sent out an article that addresses this subject, and if you got our newsletter, then you have the article, or you can go to our website at syndicationattorneys.com. And it's actually, the if you go to the website on the resources tab, there is a, uh, under articles, you'll see it as one of the first articles, and I think the title of it is Determining Investor Suitability. So if you don't already have it from the newsletter, you may want to go there and get that article so you can read it because that tells you all about this uh, this case, Citizen versus uh, uh, B, Citizen BC, and this no action letter that they sent to the SEC and what it was they were proposing to do. And I don't really want to go too far into the facts of that case here because I really want to get you guys to the meat of what you need to know, and that's what the SEC ultimately said. And that has kind of become now the new rule for how you're going to determine investor suitability. So what is that? Um, so the SEC looked at what Citizen VC proposed doing, and they said, all right, here's the requirements for determining investor suitability. First, there must be a pre-existing relationship between the issuer and the investor. And so the issuer is you. If you're the one selling the securities, you are the issuer of the securities. If you're the one promoting and selling investment contracts or, or promoting and selling promissory notes in exchange for investor dollars, you are the issuer of those securities. Okay? Issuer, syndicator, general partner, manager, all of those things really mean the same thing. Okay. So first they said there must be a pre-existing relationship between the issuer and the investor that is not built solely 
through a specific duration of time or a short form accreditation questionnaire. So you can't just give someone a pre-qualification questionnaire and say, hey, check the box if you're accredited or you're sophisticated, give it back to me, and now we have a relationship. That's not good enough. So it, it's, and, it, and it's also, you may have heard some kind of rules that say, oh, you have to have three touches in 30 days or three touches in 45 days. Well, those aren't SEC rules. Those are good rules of thumb because they're going to help establish the relationship. So how do you determine the pre-existing relationship? First, you have to meet somebody. Second, you have to actually get to know them. All right. So this, I, I always talk about this as if it's like a dating relationship. Kind of would be a little weird if you met somebody at a bar and then 10 minutes later asked them to marry you. So you, you wouldn't do that. They'd think you were weird. They wouldn't want to have anything further to do with you and an investor is going to feel the same way. But if you got their contact information, if you followed up with them later, determined if you had some common interests, and then maybe made a date, even had, you know, did some activities together or at least started having some regular communications, then you would be able to establish that relationship. But more than that, you also have to understand that investor's financial situation. So you have to be able to know before you start making offers to invest to them, whether they are accredited or sophisticated. And, uh, you know, so how are you going to do that? Um, all right. So there has to be a pre-existing relationship. You have to meet somebody, you have to develop the relationship over time, okay, and you have to understand their financial situation, and you can't just do it by getting a short-form accreditation questionnaire and sticking it in a file and then calling them six months later and asking them to invest with you. It's not going to be sufficient. Okay, so the SEC said rather a pre-existing relationship can be established by adhering to specific policies and procedures, both online and offline, where appropriate, which enable the issuer to evaluate this prospective investor's financial sophistication, circumstances, suitability, and his or her ability to understand the nature and risks of the invest interest to be offered and that the issuer actually followed this process to make such an evaluation. Okay, so that's a lot of that's a lot of words. So let's kind of break that down. Let's say, so we have to have specific policies and procedures. So each of you should think about that and think about what would you you know what is your method of meeting investors and what is going to be your method of developing these relationships with these investors, okay? So specific policies and procedures, if you write them down, then not only are you able to do them, but you're able to share those with your team. So as you partner with different people on different deals, you can say, here's the policies and procedures we have to follow in order to make sure that we have established pre-existing relationships with our investors, okay? So that's number one, policy and procedure, okay? Second, which enable the issuer to evaluate the prospective investor's financial sophistication, circumstances, suitability, and ability to understand the nature and risks of the interest offered. So that's where we're going to go next, is how, what kind of questions would you have to ask someone in order to evaluate their financial sophistication, circumstances, suitability, 
and their ability to understand the nature and risks of the interest to be offered. So for those of you who did get the article or did read the newsletter, there was a place where you could click and actually come up with a list of questions. We gave you a list of sample suitability questions that you can put into your written policies and procedures as to what kind of questions you're going to ask of your investors. So we've given you some examples. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just some ideas on some things that you might be able to ask investors. And if you had the answers to all of these questions, then the SEC or state regulator would probably look at you and say, yes, you really did take some time to establish the suitability of that investor, and they wouldn't hassle you about not having the right relationship. All right, so what kind of questions might those be? So just kind of running through the questions in case you don't have the list in front of you. And again, if you go to the website under the resources tab in the articles and you pull up that article, there is a place you can click in there and get those questions. Um, but what is your current net worth? Okay, so that's a good question to ask. Has your last two years income exceeded $200,000 a year if single or $400,000 a year if married? Okay, that tells you right there. Are they accredited? Are they not accredited? And remember, if you're going to do a Reg D Rule 506C offering, that would disqualify anybody who said no to that question. But you'd still want to establish a relationship with them, even if you're doing a 506C offering, because you might decide later on for your next deal, hey, I met enough people who are qualified to do 506B offering, maybe my next offering is going to be 506B so that I can include those, those investors. All right, third question. Do you expect your current income to continue into the future? Remember I said in order to establish someone as accredited, it had to have been for the last two years that they met the qualifications and with an expectation it will continue into the future. All right, what kind of investments do you currently have? Well, this goes into the SEC's question on their financial sophistication um, and their uh, ability to understand the nature and risks of what you're going to offer them. All right, next question. What is the value of your other investments? Right, that's going to give you an idea of where they are with their uh, sophistication level. Okay, what kind of returns are you getting on your other investments? This is going to help you determine if they're suitable for your investment because if they're getting, it's going to do two things. One, they might tell you a number that's very, very low and you can do better than that. And, and then you now you can open the door to talking to them about the fact that you can perhaps you know, offer them something better than what they're earning right now. And the other thing is if their number is too high, then you may want to have a further discussion to see if, if that's a real number or, or if that's just what they're, you know, they'd like to get. Um, but if their number is significantly higher than what you're able to offer them, they're not going to be suitable for your offering because they're never going to be happy with what you have to offer. So that's going to help you determine suitability. It's going to help you open the door to talking about the kind of returns that you might be offering with your investment opportunities. What experience do you have in private placements? That's going to go to their ability to understand the nature and risks of the interest to be offered. And one thing you might do if they don't have any experience with that on our website Again, under the Articles tab, we do have an article on 10 things investors should know before investing in a syndication. You're welcome to show that to your investors. 
that article will help them understand how a syndicate works and uh, help them be able to understand that there's documents they'll have to review, that you're going to be in control of the deal, things that they should ask about you and what kind of due diligence they should do before investing, which will help them get educated about private placements. You can also send them to our website and ask them to review the articles on our website so they can understand. Um, what are your investment objectives? All right, so you want to know how long do they want to stay invested? How, you know, what, what is it that they're trying to achieve with their investment dollars? Um, what is your investment time horizon? Okay, is someone planning to retire in two or three years where they're going to start needing their money out and you're offering five to seven year investment opportunities or maybe 10 or 20 year investment opportunities? They're not going to be a good fit for that. Um, what liquidity needs do you have? If they think, hey, in two years, I'm going to need money for this, and you're not going to be able to liquidate your offering within two years, or you're not planning to liquidate the offering within two years, then you won't want to put them in a long-term deal. But maybe if you're doing single-family fix and flips, and you're just you know, borrowing money, then maybe that would be a suitable investment for them. And then how would you rate your risk tolerance? If risk tolerance is something that the SEC and the securities regulators always focus on. You know, if you, and this goes to the fact of how much money do you have to invest? You don't want to take everybody's money, you know, all of somebody's money. You also don't want to take money that they're depending on uh, in order to pay their bills. And you don't want them depending on the returns from you in order to pay their bills. This has to be money that they can invest and that they could afford to lose in the event something went uh, wrong with the investment. So as you can see, this might have uh, given you some ideas about other questions you might want to ask, but this is the kind of questions that you might want to start thinking about asking all of your investors. Um, all right, so back to our questions. The, the requirements for determining investor suitability that the SEC said in this uh, Citizen VC No Action Letter. Okay. We had to have a pre-existing relationship. We had to determine an investor's financial sophistication, circumstances, suitability, and their ability to understand the nature and risks of the interest to be offered, and that you actually followed this process to make an evaluation. All right, so when you're asking those questions, you need to be writing down the answers. Or maybe you're going to send those questions to them in a questionnaire, and they're going to send you back their answers. Either way, you're going to want to keep a record of what they said, because that's going to be your defense later if the SEC or somebody else says these people weren't suitable to be in this offering. Um, and then the third thing that the SEC said is that the relationship must predate the offer. So if you've got an apartment complex or, or property, a multifamily property, a commercial property, something under contract right now, this isn't the time to go out and start establishing relationships because you really have to have the relationships in place before you start, before you have a current or contemplated offer. And certainly an offer is current or contemplated at the time you have your offering documents in hand. It's also current or contemplated at the time that you have it under contract, you're doing due diligence and your securities attorney is drafting the offering documents. Prior to that, you don't have anything to offer. That's when you need to be making these relationships 
building a database of people who you've vetted through this process. And if you do that, now you're going to have a ready group of investors that you are eligible to ask for uh, investment dollars once you do have a current or contemplated offering. So that's really how it works. And then the final thing is that you have to have a record-keeping system in order to prove compliance with these suitability requirements. So that's pretty much uh, the how to determine investor suitability. I know it's a little bit complicated. I know these uh, conversations can be a little uncomfortable to have. But remember this. It's all in your mindset, right? You are not asking people for money, okay? You're not asking them for a favor. You're offering them an investment opportunity that they need to meet their investment goals. The whole reason that you're determining, going through this questionnaire is to determine whether what you have to offer is a good fit for them. And if you keep it in that reference and you tell them, that's why I'm asking you these questions. If not, I'm not trying to pry. I really just want to understand whether the kinds of things that we might be able to offer you in the future are going to be suitable for you because your time is valuable. We don't want to waste your time having you looking at deals that aren't going to meet your financial requirements. So if you can tell us what you think, you know, what, what things might fit your financial requirements, if we can go through this, this interview, then we're going to have a much better idea of what you're looking for so that we don't offer you things that aren't suitable for you. All right? So that's it in a nutshell. Um, we're going to open up the call to questions now. While we're waiting for people to ask questions, I do want to hand out our um, contact information. The uh, website is syndicationattorneys.com. There are many free articles, uh, podcasts, uh, previously recorded teleseminars like this on our website that you can review at your convenience. And we would love to have you do that. Um, you can call us at 844-SYNDICATE. 844, and that's S-Y-N-D-I-C, and the number 8. So that's uh, a good way to reach us. If you go to the website, you'll see that there's places there that you can schedule a free teleconference, and we'll be able to talk to you about what you're looking to do and uh, see how we can help you. All right, so we do have some callers and with some questions, and I'm going to go ahead and start taking those now. Okay, my name is John Tanner, and uh, my question is, uh, is there a form that you have to fill out and, and send to the SEC or to the state of Florida um, that registers you as an, an exempt business looking for those sophisticated investors? And do you have to do it multiple um, times with every syndicate that you create? Well, that's a really good question. And yes, it is syndicate by syndicate. So when you won't register yourself, okay, you're going to register the uh, the securities offering that you're going to use to actually ask people for money. So as an example, if you're going to um, buy commercial property, then you would get a commercial property under contract and you would have a securities attorney draft your offering documents and then those offering documents will constitute your securities offering. So that's going to be usually a private placement memorandum, the operating agreement for the LLC that's going to take title to the property, a subscription agreement, um, and then 
the securities attorney should also be doing these securities notice filings for you. So the first thing is an, what's called a Form D that we file with the SEC, and that has to be filed within 15 days of when the uh, first investor's money becomes irrevocably contractually committed. So that's going to certainly happen when you close on the property, because if somebody, you know, gave you some money, you put it in the bank account, you're waiting for closing, uh, you know, pre-closing, if, if they came to you and said, hey, I just can't do the deal anymore, something happened, you'd probably give their money back and find somebody else. But certainly when you close on the property and you've given that money over to the seller, but you don't have it anymore, that money is irrevocably contractually committed. So therefore, you must at that point... Uh, you know, within 15 days, file this notice with the SEC. One notice per offering. Uh, the way we handle it is when we give you your final offering documents, when you, your offering is started, we go ahead and do that Form D filing. The second thing you asked about was, what is, is there something you have to file with the state? Uh, Florida is the only state that doesn't have a state filing requirement. All of the other states require that as you sell uh, securities in their jurisdiction, that you have to file a notice with them also within 15 days of when the uh, first sale was commenced in their jurisdiction. So, um, you know, for instance, if you, it's only one, uh, one notice per state, regardless of the number of investors. So the first time you accept an investor, say from Massachusetts, we would file a notice in Massachusetts. Those state securities notices do require fees at the time that you submit the filing, the uh, Form D that we file with the SEC does not require a fee. Okay? Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Uh, we'll go on to the next question. Yeah, so um, my name is Grace, and I have a question about a sophisticated investor. So in the deal, I know there's a limit of 35 sophisticated investors. Are there any dollar amount or percentage limit in in the total number-wise? Are there any dollar amount limits? No. Mm -hmm. No, there's no dollar limits on the number of, uh, on the amount that sophisticated investors can invest. But one thing I didn't say when I was doing the lecture, and I do want to point out, is that the SEC was very clear when they were talking about the suitability uh, requirements in the Citizen VC No Action Letter that the suitability requirements applied to all investors and not just uh, unaccredited investors. So you actually have to ask those questions even of your prospective accredited investors. Thank you so much. Right, thank you. All right, we'll go on to the next question. Hey, Ken Brown. How are you? Uh, one, I believe you said on a Reg D 506B that we have to personally meet with the person. No, you don't have to personally meet with them, but you're going to have to have some live interaction. Or you do that Got on it. the phone or in person is, is uh, you know, doesn't matter. But and, and you have to document it. So you want to document right. every every meeting with an investor. You, sh you really your record keeping system should be such that you can, uh, first of all, get the answers to these questions, save them, and put them in a place where you've got, you know, one compartment, whether it's a file folder on your desktop, the computer desktop, or in your drawer, uh, where you can keep all of that investor's information together about when, when you met them. So when you're meeting people and you're picking up business cards at these events you go to, make sure that you're writing on the card what event it was that you met them at. 
And then as you follow up with them, you're going to keep a record of, you know, date, time, who was on the call, uh, what things were discussed. If you have them fill out any kind of a questionnaire, then you're going to keep that in that same file folder and uh, just kind of keep a running total of all of the communications you have with that investor. And ideally, you're going to want to do that even after they've invested with you because you might have some follow-up conversations with them that then unfortunately become the subject of a lawsuit. And if you have all of that stuff documented, it's going to uh, serve you very well. Do you recommend recording all your conversations? No, I don't. I think that that's onerous. I think it's too much, and I think it makes your investors nervous, and that actually could work against you. So I would not do that. But I would keep a written record of of those things because if you establish, and remember, we have to establish policies and procedures. So if you have a policy and procedure that says every time I have a conversation with an investor, I'm going to take a note and I'm going to record the subject of the call and who was on it and, you know, date and time, then now you've established a business record, uh, business records, uh, which are the normal, normal part of doing business and those would be admissible in court if you're doing it consistently all the time. Great. The second question is, if I advertise, uh, clearly I will get a percentage of people who are not accredited. Can I, if I have spoken to them a few times over an extended period of time, can I offer them a Reg D 506B offering? Oh, yeah. Well, if, if, well, okay. So it depends what your advertising is, is doing. If you're advertising and saying, you know, here's my offering, I've got, you know, this apartment complex under contract and I'm raising a million and a half bucks. Well, you can't advertise and put them into that deal if, uh, you know, because that would have to be a 506C offering in order to be compliant with the rules. And so mm-hmm. you could never say, oh, I'm going to do that as 506B instead, and now you can get in, uh, because you've met these people through general advertising and solicitation. So if you meet somebody because of your advertisement, um, you're always going to put them in a future deal, nothing that you have available right now. Even if you're you know, scrambling to raise that last money prior to closing, you better be real careful about putting anybody who you just met into that deal. Uh, if it's a 506B. If it's a 506C, doesn't matter. You, you don't have to develop relationships with them. You don't have to determine suitability. You just have to advertise and, and verify that they're accredited, and then you can bring them into your deal. Excellent. Thank you so much, Kim. You're welcome. Thanks for asking. Okay, next question. Hi, Kim. Nick from Montreal. Hi, Nick. Uh, first question. Um, I know we talk about uh, 506B and 506C. Is there a way that you could just have both? Like, is there a way to pay extra and just have both? Well, it's it, no, because the the whole point is, in one case you're advertising, in one case you're not. And so, if you have a, a 506, if you have a property that's the subject of a 506C offering, or or you have a fund that's the subject of a 506C offering you know, then you're going to be advertising for that. And it's only available to verified accredited investors. So by definition, it's going to exclude any unaccredited investors. And so if you're going to do 506B, then you won't, you know, the the reason that you do 506B 
There's two reasons you do 506B. And I will tell you that most of my clients are doing 506B. Uh, the reason you do 506B is because you want to be able to bring in unaccredited investors or you have accredited investors that don't want to go through the verification process. And that is a very real issue. I've had a lot of clients that have developed relationships with investors over the years. They've kind of run through that group of investors. Now they want to expand and advertise and they try to switch over to 506B and they get resistance from their prior investors who don't want to go through the verification process. There is a fix for that, and the fix is that one of the ways that a person can be verified is if they invested with the issuer on a prior offering as an accredited investor, then they can be grandfathered in and they don't actually have to go through this third-party verification process. They would have to tell you if any of their circumstances have changed since they last certified themselves as accredited. Uh, so, so that's one way that you can get past that. But, but there is resistance amongst uh, accredited investors to share their financials with anybody. The people are nervous about uh, emailing their uh, sensitive financial information because of, you know, uh, cybercrime. And if you haven't listened to it before, it'll scare the heck out of you. Listen to our last tele teleseminar on uh, cybersecurity because you really do have to be cautious about how you're going to safeguard that information if somebody's going to give it to you online. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. All right. And the, the last question is, uh, so basically, no matter both circumstances, uh, the only way to raise money uh, is you have to have an offer, on the, an offer on the table, right? You can't just advertise without having an offer. Or also, it would be a blind pool, correct? Well, it, you're still going to have an offering even if you're doing a blind pool. So a blind pool, okay. you're just going to have a set of offering documents that say, well, we're not, I'm not raising money for a specific property. Here's my business plan. This is what I'm raising money for. And okay. so okay. in any case, you still have an offering. Now, can you have an ongoing marketing program for your company? Yes, you can. You can always advertise your company. You can only advertise deals if you're doing a 506C. Okay, or some other, you know, interest date exemption that might allow you to advertise. But in most cases, you're only going to advertise if you're doing 506C. Okay, so I can always advertise my company and my business plan, but the moment to yeah, accept... Yeah, you can always, yeah, and that's, you know, you can put up a website, and as long as you're not posting your deal, okay, that's when you have to start thinking about... Okay, now what am I doing? If you're posting deals, first of all, you shouldn't be posting any 506B deal on a website unless you have a very clear process of making sure that nobody can review it until they've been vetted and you've established this pre-existing relationship and determined their suitability. Okay, if you're doing 506C offerings, you could put up a website and you could post your, your offering materials, but I'm going to tell you, you have to be super careful about that because uh, it, there are people out there, the dark web exists, and people will actually try to hijack your offering and get people to send their money to them for impersonating you. And I've seen it wow. happen. Yeah, okay. so it's very, you know, so you, even though, you can advertise under 506C. You're still going to be far more effective in getting people to invest with you if you do the same exact process we talked about on this call with every single investor, no matter whether it's a 506B or a 506C offering. 
First of all, you're going to know that person. You're going to know a lot more about that person. And suitability isn't just about their financial circumstances. You also have to get to know them and understand whether this is someone you want to be in business with. Uh, I actually was talking to someone not too long ago, and, uh, you know, the analogy I used with them, I said, you know, they said, well, you know, I've got a lot of friends who, you know, who want to invest with me. And I said, well, why don't, and and he said, well, I'd like to make them a joint ventures. And I said, well, before you go doing that, why don't you take a look at their spouses and decide if that spouse is someone you want to be in business with? Because if something happens to your buddy, guess what? That's your new partner. (laughs) So, anyway, you got to think about crazy spouses, too. (laughs) So, anyway, my whole point there is doing doing investor suitability, you know, you really are trying to get to know the person as a person and see if they're reasonable and somebody you want to do business with as much as you're asking these questions that are required. Okay. Okay. So, so in a nutshell, nutshell, uh, let's say I'm a 506B. I'm able to advertise my business plan to people. I'm able to talk to people about my business plan, my company, what we do, but I cannot get any money from them until, you know, there's a relationship and all that stuff. Correct? That's right. Okay, we'll go on to the next question. Gary Groffel calling from Austin. Um, um, I think you've asked a lot of my questions, answered a lot of my questions. However, um, when you were talking about a, a, the spouse of an investor and do you want to be in business with her, um, uh, can you comment on the um, perhaps buying life insurance policies, um, uh, insurable interest uh, to, to pay off an investor? Um, kind of like he's done. Uh, yeah, you, you could, I mean, you could certainly do that. Um, you know, we always recommend that uh, the manager or general partner of a syndicate purchase directors and officers liability insurance. Okay, that that will cover the members of the management team uh, in the event that they get sued by the investors. And as long as they haven't done something illegal, it should indemnify them. It should uh, provide at least for the payment of their legal defense. And that is actually a benefit to the syndicate because if somebody sues the manager, then the first thing the manager is going to do is not, you know, they're going to suspend distributions because they have to go out and hire an attorney to to defend themselves. And it's going to affect all of the investors. So if you have this director's and officer's liability insurance, then perhaps that's not going to require that uh, it's going to affect the other investors. Um, So we always recommend that as far as, um, you know, giving yourself some kind of a key principal insurance that, that you could be replaced. That's also something that's, uh, you know, advisable, you know, making sure that there's a key insurance policy. Uh, you have to be careful if you're a manager of, you know, 15 syndicates and you've got a million dollar insurance policy on yourself for each one, then, you know, maybe, maybe your life is in danger. I don't know. <laughs> I can uh-huh. have to kind of consider that, that somebody might think, hmm. Um, but as far as uh, buying insurance to be able to pay off an investor, I have not heard of anybody doing that, and I don't know if such a policy exists. I do know Lloyd's of London will you know, pretty much insure anything. So, you know, I guess if you can find it and, and get someone to sell it to you, uh, the question would be who has to pay for that, and, uh, and I don't know. What typically is going to happen, though, and most often, is if you have 
a recalcitrant investor or somebody who's just unhappy or really needs to get out, you're going to go to the other members and say, hey, you know, this is happening and this person's threatening litigation or they're, you know, making a threat and uh, ask the other investors if they would all contribute so that that person can be bought out. Now, or you can tell that person to go out and find, uh, you know, there's a process that we put into our documents where if somebody wants to get out of a deal, they can um, they can go out and find another investor, but they have to sell it to the invest to your company at the same terms offered by the other investor, which might only be fifty or sixty percent uh, on their original investment. Uh, okay. Secondly, um, my main business now is. Uh, single-family homes uh, through pre-foreclosure, subject to, or uh, probate properties. Um, in, in order to keep uh, investors' money active, um, if I don't have any deals to offer them, uh, is there, a, a, but my fellow uh, investors in my investment club do, is there, is there a way to translate that, or can you comment on Keeping the well, you could do you could do a blind pool, uh, you know, or a private equity fund where you raise the money and you you, you know your business plan says that we're either going to use the money on our own deal or we might loan it to other people. Okay, you faded out there a little bit. Um, So what I was saying is you could you could do a, a fund where your business plan is that we're going to use this money that we've raised on our own deals or we might loan it to other people or invest in other people's deals. But that um, that would not require a, a, a license on my part, though. It would require a securities offering. So you'd have to have, uh, you know, the, a business plan, a private placement memorandum. Uh, you know, uh, you'd have to have some kind of... Uh, uh, investment contract with your investors, whether you're giving them promissory notes or if you're offering them interest in an LLC, you've got to have some kind of a investor contract and then a subscription agreement and securities notice filing. So you would have a securities offering in order to do that. Okay, an offering, but no requirement for me to. Have, yeah, well, to have but a... it depends too. I mean, if, if you're, it, 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 you know, I don't know what you're doing. Are you just brokering their money to somebody else? Well, in that case, yes, you'd have to have a license. If you were raising money in your own fund and then your own fund was deciding whether it's going to invest in deals that you find or deals that other people have, then that would be something that wouldn't require a license. But if you're just saying, oh, well, I don't have any deal for you right now, but Joe does, why don't you invest with him and he's going to give me a 2% commission on what you invest, well, then you're going to have to have some kind of a license to do that. Uh, you know, probably a mortgage broker's license if it's if it's promissory notes or uh, a securities license if you're uh, if if Joe is selling you know, equity interest. All right, thank you. Mhm. Okay, we've got one more caller. Uh, my name is Lee Crutch. I'm calling from New York. I just wanted a little clarity um, for for the filing of the five o three C. And B, are they both required on the state level and the federal level, or just the state level? Okay, so five o so so the right uh, the right code is five o six B 506, or five o six 
Yeah, okay, 506C or 506C. And um, there are, uh, you, you do have to file a Form D with the SEC and in the states where the investors are claiming residency. So if they're individuals, where they live, where they pay taxes, if they're uh, investing through an LLC, then it would be the state that the entity was formed in. Um, so, yes, there are uh, usually uh, filings required at both the state and the federal level. New York is uh, a little bit different. Um, usually when we're doing New York offerings, uh, the, the community is split. On the, the securities attorney's community is split on whether filings are required. If you call the New York State Securities Agency, they'll tell you they absolutely are. But uh, there's uh, some reasons that they may not be, uh, and they're very onerous. They're very expensive. For an offering of over $500,000, doesn't matter how much you sold in uh, Florida or in New York, they want a $1,900 filing fee. All the other state wow. filing fees range from like 50 to 750 bucks. You know, so you got to be careful in how many states that you're bringing in investors from, and this is one of the reasons you don't want to set your um, your investment amount really low. Because if you have you know five thousand dollar investment amounts and you've got people coming in from New York and you have to pay a nineteen hundred dollar fee for a five thousand dollar investment, that's that's not a good return. But if you're you know have fifty or hundred thousand dollar investments, then maybe that's worth it. Okay. Um, another question, uh, piggybacking off the previous caller's question, the liability insurance, that would be insurance for the, you mentioned two types of insurance. Um, one is for the general partner or the manager of the LLC, um, mm-hmm. I, I guess being sued. And yes. you mentioned another type of insurance, that which I missed. So that would be what's called key principal insurance. It's really just a life insurance right, policy. Okay. Yeah, it's a life insurance policy that would, uh, you know, if you died, then it would kick in and it would uh, pay the company if you made the company the beneficiary or, or you know, pay your spouse or somebody or maybe the other members of the management team so that you could be replaced. Okay, and last question. How quick will this call be uploaded to your website? You know, we usually get them up within uh, three to four days. Okay. Okay. And we also right, will send that. We'll also send out the recording uh, as a follow-up to our database. So, hey, thank you so much, everybody, for being on the call today. We appreciate uh, that you took time out of your busy day to listen to us. And, uh, you know, we love your questions and we love to talk to you. So um, always visit our website, you know, schedule an appointment if you want to uh, cruise through the stuff that's on the resources page. We're constantly updating the FAQs and adding new articles and these new teleseminars. And uh, if you have any specific questions or a topic you think it would be good for us to cover, we'd love to hear about that, too. So uh, we hope to have you all as clients in the future, and we hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Raise Private Money Legally podcast with your host, securities attorney Kim Lisa Taylor. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. 
Syndication Attorneys PLLC is a law firm that provides syndication and fund documents, offers commercial real estate transactional services, and creates professionally designed investor marketing materials for capital raising clients nationwide. Visit syndicationattorneys.com to schedule an appointment and sign up to get a copy of our latest book, How to Raise Capital for Real Estate Legally, the only guide you need to raise private money legally for real estate funds and syndications.